Several months ago, I got together with five other pastors who are friends of mine in this community, five younger guys who pastor several churches in the area that you would be familiar with. And uh, we've been getting together every month uh, since I got back from sabbatical a while back. And while I was on sabbatical, I just uh, wanted to start to connect with some of these guys. And so I called them up and asked them to come to lunch. And we've been meeting together every month, pretty much every month since then. And one of the things we decided to do was to plan a sermon series together. And so we got together and spent an entire day together out in the, in the, in the middle of nowhere and just worked together on the theme, the structure, and the direction of this sermon series. And so there are, there are other churches in our community that will be working through this sermon series uh, through, the, through the course of the year, which is pretty cool that uh, we're going to experience this together in a much broader way than just what's happening right here. So I'm thankful for those guys and the experience of walking through that. And you can remember those guys in their prayers. They told me this week when we got together, they were certainly glad that I was a little bit ahead of them so they could watch online and see what I did so they would know then. And I said, well, that's not really fair. So next time around, you guys are first. So anyway, some great guys, and we're excited about this series together and you can be encouraged about that, hopefully. One of the guys that is in that group is actually a brother of a, a man that goes to church here. And when I first met the pastor who is the brother of the guy who goes here, I thought it was just so funny how much this guy resembled his brother here in our church. They had so many of the same mannerisms and the same phrases and the same sound in their voice. It was really, really funny. And that's really true about family members. A lot of times, you know, siblings will demonstrate a lot of the same mannerisms. They'll say a lot of the same phrases. They'll use a lot of the same kinds of words. And I think a lot of the times that happens because growing up, they had parents or a parent that would sit down and say things like, you know, this is the things that we say in our family. I'm sure that there are some families in our church that have had that kind of discussion over the last uh, several weeks, sitting down with your young kids saying something like, I know that you heard the pastor say the word stupid multiple times, but that does not mean we say that in our house. And so I know that you had that kind of discussion with your kids. We've had those kinds of discussions with our kids, especially when they're little and we're going to go to somebody's house for supper. You know, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. And so you sit the kids down and you say, okay, here's what you're not going to say. You're not going to say you don't like that. You're not going to say that's gross. You're not going to say that's nasty. You're not going to complain. You're not going to whine. That's not how we roll. This is how we roll. And you lay it out and you say, if you don't like it, put it on your plate, spread it around, look like you ate it. Figure out a way to make it look like you are appreciative of what you got, you know. And so you do this thing so they know what to say. And that's what families do. They kind of lay down the law of what is supposed to be said and how it's supposed to be said within a family. You think about us as a church. I mean, we, we are a family here. We, we are called by the Lord together to experience family under his fatherhood. And the Lord, as our Father, has given direction for us as to how we are to use our words, particularly about Him, within our church family. If you, if you just listen around this place on any given day when we're gathered together, you're going to hear words that people say to each other in our church family 
about God, about what's happening with the Lord in our lives, about what we're facing in our lives, what's happening between each other. And we're going to use phrases and words to describe things about God in our church family. And God's given us some guidelines because he is a caring, loving father. And I want us to look at a couple of scripture passages just to kind of get us headed in the right direction. I want to look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verse 31. You see, words matter so much to the Lord. And as his family, what we say about him together to each other is incredibly important. And notice what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you abide or if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So Jesus is saying, if you abide in the word, you follow me. You you are following me. You are in this family. You abide in the word. And then you will know the truth. So you abide in the word of Christ. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And specifically, he's talking about freedom from sin. See, all of us have a propensity to sin, and it's never made any more uh, uglier than it is made within our church family. I mean, when we, when we run headlong into sin in this place, things get really ugly here. And Jesus is saying, if you abide in the truth, if you abide in his word, you're going to know truth, and that truth is going to help you avoid the sin that can devastate you and your church family and really distract the world from the gospel will wreck your life. You can avoid that if you abide in the word, if you abide in the truth. And I just want you to be reminded that it is so important to the Lord that the truth of God's word, that the truth that Jesus has brought to us, um, really boundary and, and, and really help us measure what we say in our church family. The measure we need to have on what we say about God in our church family is the Word of God. And so we want to make sure we are measuring the things we say about God in our church family by the Word of God. There's another verse in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. In every way, what we say is supposed to be measured by who God is and what God says. And when we go about just talking about things in a hasty manner and not considering or measuring what we say by who God is and what God says, the scripture here says there's more hope for a fool than for us. We need to be cautious, we need to be careful about the things we say about God in our church family. There's another Proverbs I think is really applicable here. It's Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. In Proverbs 10, 19 says, when, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The picture is a person who is just 
unrestrained in the way they're talking. They're just talking and talking and talking and talking. There's no restraint, no consideration, no measure on what they're saying. But the one who restrains what he says, in other words, the one who considers what is being said before it's said so that what is said is really accurate and correct and right, measured by who God is and what God says, then that person is really going to be speaking wisely. The person who doesn't speak like that will find themselves in sin. And there we are, full circle to John 8, 31 and 32. If you will stay in the truth, make sure the truth guards your mouth, it will help us all stay away from sin. But if we don't, it will lead us to a path that is destructive. This is really, really important. And tonight what I want to do more than anything else is to just raise our awareness for the need for care to be careful about what we say, to to think and consider what it is we're saying about God in our church family so that really what we say is measured by the Word of God. What I don't want to do tonight is create a lot of guilt. I, I don't want you to feel guilty about things that you've said in the past. I want you to feel I've been made more aware of the need for care in what I say. I don't want to tonight to uh, give you the sense that you should be saying less. Because the more you say, the more you're going to mess up. What I want you to walk away is to say, I want to say as much as I can say, measured by who God is and what God has said, so that much is made of God in our church family. I really want us to step into this with the right heart together, wanting God to help us be able to talk about Him and what He does as a family in a way that makes us and helps us be more and more God-centered, focused on the gospel and listening for the voice of God in our fellowship. So what I want to do is I want to walk through a few um, samples of some phrases that may be used here at Southside, may have been heard, may have been used by you. Now I want to give a disclaimer. When I use these phrases and give you these examples, I'm not picking on anyone. I did not spend time the last several weeks just hanging around you, listening, and making notes. Oh, that was good. Gene Goodwin said this one. I'll get him. Stephen White said this one, so I'm glad he's here. I I didn't do that. I, I did not spend time taking notes, figuring out how to make you look like a fool tonight. I have a feeling that once we work through all this, we'll all feel a little bit foolish together because we have all said things like this. Not one of us is free from the indictment of being careless with our words. And so this is for the point of illustration. If anybody begins to feel like you're getting offended at this, just take a deep breath and recognize you're not alone. We are all being equally offended, okay? So here's, here's the first phrase. Worship was really good today. Okay, show of hands, who's sitting? I'm just kidding, you don't have to do that. Uh, We've all probably done that, right? We've said those words. Now, when we say worship was good today, what are we really saying when we say that? I think some people may be saying, I really like the songs that Kurt picked out today because I knew them all and they were really fun to sing. 
Sometimes I think when we say worship was good today, we're saying, I did not get bored. I did not fall asleep. I actually heard at least three things Kevin said today. None of them made sense, but I heard them. So you're saying that some way what you heard from the preacher was at least tolerable, enjoyable, maybe impactful. You're saying something about the way you feel about the elements of worship. Now, best case scenario, you might be saying something about what you perceived God did in your life through the experience. Maybe you felt like you needed to repent of some sin. Maybe you felt like that something significant happened in your life that marked this day. And so you said, worship was really good today. The problem with that statement is it needs to be measured against who God is and what God says. Because we're saying something about God we probably don't want to say, and we're saying something about worship I'm certain we absolutely do not want to say. See, if we say worship was good today, then what are we saying about the other Sundays? I mean, are we saying on the other Sundays that we just did not like the music set, we did not think that Kevin preached a good sermon and therefore it was not good? Are we saying on the other days that worship was not good because We did not sense the same things about God or from God that we sensed on the day that worship was good? What are we really saying when we say worship was good today about the other Sundays we don't say that about? And then what are we really saying about worship? Are we saying that worship is when we feel something quantifiable that actually we enjoy, like, or appreciate? Maybe it's something we feel that's a deep challenge and we think, man, my toes were stepped on. Worship was good today. And here's what I want you to think about from a biblical perspective. When is worship bad? Is there ever a time when worship is bad? Now, when we define biblically the concept and the practice of worship, which would be acknowledging the glory of God, and adjusting my life to who he is through faith in Christ on the basis of grace. That is worship. Acknowledging the goodness, the truthfulness, the rightfulness, the glory of God, and adjusting my life to who he is through faith in Christ on the basis of grace. That's what worship is. Worship is always good when sinners who have been washed in the blood of Christ are ushered into the presence of God and get to praise God without God pouring out his wrath on us. Worship is always good. It's good inherently. And so instead of saying worship was good today, When you mean you like the songs, say, I really like the songs today. And the songs really helped me see something about the Lord. And I worship the Lord because I saw him. You like the sermon. Great. Say you like the sermon. But but don't say that liking the sermon is worship, and that's what makes worship good. There can be days when you don't like the music, and you don't get anything profound out of the sermon, and you should walk out of that service and still be able to say worship was good because you decided to acknowledge the glory of God and to adjust your life to who He is. We will all be far better off 
if we will talk about worship in a way that reflects more of who God is and what God says and less of what we might feel about an element or an experience that's pertinent to one particular experience. Kurt and I love compliments and encouragement. Don't get me wrong. Uh, We try to take those to the Lord as thanks to Him, and we're not telling you not to tell us that you enjoyed an element of our service. But what we are wanting you to do is measure your words about worship and about God so that what we're saying to each other about what God does makes more of God and draws us to Him. All right, here's phrase number two. God will not give you more than you can handle. God will not give you more than you can handle. Someone says this to someone who's going through a difficult time to encourage them. Wants them to realize it'll get better. You can make it through this. God's going to help you. I mean, it may be that they're saying when they say that, that they believe that the only way they can handle it is trusting in the Lord. And because they know they'll trust in the Lord, they can handle it. But that phrase, God will not give you more than you can handle, needs to be measured against God's word. I mean, we have to answer the question, would God, does God, give us more than we can handle at any point in our life? If you think about a few of the Bible characters, think about Moses. When God called Moses to go deliver the Israelites, what did Moses say? I can't do that. That's more than I can handle. You know how I talk. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not in for that. Do you think that when Daniel was going to be thrown into the lion den, he thought at that point, I can handle this? Or did you, do you think maybe he felt like, God, if you don't come through, I'm going to be lunch? I mean, do you, do you think that Jeremiah, when he was facing all the opposition, when he's preaching the word of God, when he was nearly killed and left for dead, do you think at any point in Jeremiah's experience he thought, I don't know how I can handle any more of this? Well, if you read Jeremiah, you're going to think that he thought that a lot. The disciples would say things like, well, who then can be saved? Well, who then should get married? A way to say, I don't know how you can handle this. Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians, Lord, I've got a thorn in the flesh that is tormenting me. And I'm asking you to take it away. And then he didn't get it taken away. Asked again. And then he asked again a third time. Why? Because he could not handle it. And God said to Paul, I can handle it. Just trust me. See, the reality is all through Scripture, God always gives His people more than they can handle. It's by design so that His people will trust Him and Him alone. So so we shouldn't try to encourage people by saying, God won't give you more than you can handle. Even in in respect to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that says that in the time of temptation, God will help us, that we won't have more than we are able to endure because God will provide a way of escape so that we can endure it. In other words, you can't handle it. 
And that's why God steps in. And unless he steps in, you're finished. So even in the matters of temptation, we should not talk about it like God's not giving me, give me anything more than I can handle. No. Even in temptation, we're going to find ourselves in over our heads. Everything in life, if we see life from God's perspective, everything in life is more than we can handle. Everything. That's why we're colossal failures, sinners in need of grace, because we cannot handle any of it, and we have to trust him. So we should say things like this. You know, God's going to regularly give you more than you can handle, but he can handle all that he gives you. He'll take care of you. He's never failed you. He will always be with you through whatever it is that overwhelms you. See, we want to make sure we measure what we say by who God is and what God has said so that our words about God to each other in this family resemble the family whose father is God. Make sense? Hey, what about this one? Third, third statement. Um, I am not being fed. That's my favorite one. I'm, not, I'm just not being fed. So people will say that because they just don't feel as spiritually alive as they think they should. They don't feel like they're being encouraged to grow. They don't feel like they're being instructed in the word of God. At best case scenario, they don't feel like their pastors or leadership or teachers are teaching the word of God. But even in that situation, that phrase, I'm not being fed, needs measuring according to the word of God. When we say, I'm not being fed, we're saying much more about God than we think that we're saying, or we would not say it. If you think about God, is he a God who is into starving the sheep of his flock? No. No. And if I say I'm not being fed, who am I blaming? I'm ultimately blaming God. I might feel better about the fact that I'm blaming the church, but then I'm in error too because the church is not responsible for that level of sustenance in my life because God is our Father and He is the one who feeds us. And the church is not responsible for that level of sustenance. Yes, the church is responsible for for guiding, for serving, for giving opportunity for people to bless others through serving. Yes, the church is responsible in their leadership for equipping and for directing and for teaching and sharing sharing the truth so people would be built up in the faith and equipped for ministry. But God wants each one of us to have a pattern in our lives of seeking him through prayer and his word so that he might feed us in our seeking him so that we might then, because we are full of him, give of ourselves to the point of being spent for his glory. There's just nowhere in Scripture you're going to find a place where it says you, what you need to do is come to church so you get really fat spiritually. No, you need to come because you have been feasting on the Lamb of God and the, 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 the strength that comes from knowing Him so you might pour your life out for the benefit and the glory of Christ. So instead of saying, I've not been fed, maybe what we should be saying is, Lord, why is it right now I feel like I'm starving? And maybe you might then say, I need to repent of sin. 
I need to ask the Lord to soften my hardened heart. Maybe you need to pray for your leaders that God would open your eyes to how he will use them just as they are to encourage you to seek the Lord so that you might find your spiritual food. And maybe your leaders at some point aren't giving you the truth of God's word like you would like. And I would encourage you to have a conversation with them and not say, you're not feeding me. But instead to say, I'm really struggling spiritually. And because I'm under your leadership, I suspect that God intends to use you to help me. See, that, that, that are, those are words measured by Scripture. All right, next phrase. God doesn't want me to suffer. Or God doesn't want you to be unhappy. You ever heard that? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in uh, marital strife, in decisions for divorcing, when one spouse says, God doesn't want me unhappy, so I'm going forward with this divorce. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that personally and heard my other pastor friends tell me that couples in their churches say the same thing. And it's because people in the church or people who are Christians are telling those individuals, you don't need to stay in that. That's not good for you. God wouldn't want that for you. And it goes into a whole host of other things where we would say to one another, God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want this experience in your life. God doesn't want you to be sick like this. God doesn't want you to be in pain like this. God doesn't want you to suffer like this. And I just want to say that there's no question that ultimately, that's true. Ultimately, God does not want his people to be sad or to suffer. And that's why he's made promises to us that there is a day that's coming when suffering will end and sadness will be no more. And we know that day is coming. But we also know because that day is still to come that that day is not right now. And so it is wrong for us to encourage each other with words about God that do not reflect God now. See, the reality is right now, as long as we're in this world, in this broken place, right now, there are times when God wants us to suffer. And suffering often produces sadness. So I could then say there are times when God wants us to be sad. If that makes you as uncomfortable as it makes me, think about it like this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul talks to the Lord about his thorn in the flesh, God tells him that he's not going to remove the torment from Paul's life. Okay, torment. That's suffering. That's not good. Paul wants out. And God says no. And Paul says, essentially this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, if I have to suffer, if I have to endure hardship, if I have to be persecuted, if I have to go through all this and experience everything this means, and it means that I get the grace of God in the midst of it, I can deal with the suffering. 
And essentially what's happened here is God has said to Paul, Paul, you may think you want and need the absence of suffering to have what you want from me, but I know better. And what I know is that I want this suffering in your life because there's something that comes with this that you will not get in the absence of suffering. So God in his goodness, he wants us at times to suffer so that we might experience something in this world of his grace that he deems best comes through suffering. And he is trustworthy. So if we're going to measure our words by what God says and who God is, instead of saying to someone, God doesn't want you to suffer, you should say, God wants you to trust him. And it just might be in this moment of pain, you learn to trust him like never before. Now I'll join you in praying that God would alleviate the suffering. I'll join you in praying that God would erase this pain, that he would take it away and give you something better. But ultimately, if he takes this pain away, there's a really good chance there's a new pain around the corner because we will never be free from pain until he returns. But what he's promised to do is to redeem the pain that he deems appropriate in our lives so that we might find him in trusting him when it hurts. See, I just, want, I just want our words about God and this family to make us want him more, to make us be centered on who he is more. Here's another phrase. Um, God knows my heart. You ever heard that one before? That one's sometimes used, particularly when we hear people talking about money. Well, you know, I know I'm not giving like I should, but God knows my heart. And typically what's going on is there's some element of sin in a person's life, and they don't feel like they're able to change that element of sin, and so they just appeal to the fact that God knows the intentions of their heart, even though their conduct is not exactly lining up with what he wants for their life. And so they find some consolation in saying, well, God knows my heart. Now, that's kind of funny because the problem is that God knows your heart. And they're finding consolation in God knowing their heart as if their intentions are less offensive than their actions. And the reality is that our heart is the problem. Our heart is a mess. And the, time, the places in our life where we have sinned against the Lord give evidence that we've got a heart problem. And we need God to come and show us the problem of our heart so that then his grace would work out in our life in holiness that reflects a changed heart. Our heart is the problem. And we need God to rescue our our dark hearts. See, apart from Jesus Christ, our hearts are a wreck. And when we talk about how God views us, we, we, we are not absolved from wrongs. Because God sees our heart. We are condemned because God sees our heart. We are absolved from condemnation because of the blood of Jesus. And we need to say, God sees my heart 
and except for Christ, I would be lost. See, we want to measure our words with who God is and what God says. What about this one? This is the last one I'll give you as an example. Um, that was a God thing. You ever heard that statement? That's a God thing. That's, it's a God thing. People say that when something very obviously good and of the Lord happens. And when it happens because it's, you know, this miraculous thing or this amazing thing or this unexplainable thing or this really positive thing or this great blessing thing, and they say, that's a God thing. And, and there's nothing wrong with giving credit to God. There's nothing wrong with talking about what God does. It's just that those kinds of words need to be measured against who God is and what God says. And the reality is, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, is that everything is a God thing because all things are for him, from him, and by him. And there is nothing that is that is not because of him. And so we could literally say about everything in life, that's a God thing. That's a God thing too. I took a breath. That's a God thing. I mean, everything is a God thing, and it is not appropriate for us to draw distinct lines on the basis of our perceptions that are related so much to how we feel about things in a moment and somehow not give God credit for things we would not say we like. See, God is sovereign over all things. And instead of giving Him credit for one thing that we like, And ignoring all the things that he is doing, we should be cautious about how we talk about what God is doing. Giving him the glory for all things. Not just the things we find easy to give him glory about. So we need to be cautious about how we use these words for several reasons. One is because the verse that Kurt read earlier. We're going to give an account. This is a serious matter. We should be cautious. But the second reason that I think we need to follow this caution is because if we do not measure the words we speak to each other in this family about God by the word of God, then we're left with one basic option. That our talk in here as a church family about what we think God is doing, who God is, what we're doing as a church family, will be measured by how we feel about what we experience. And so how we describe what's happening here will sound a lot more and more and more like what we want to feel, need to feel, or think we should feel. And we'll either like things because we felt good about them or we won't like things because we didn't like them. We don't want to be around this person because we don't like this person, so we're going to talk bad about that person because it's all generated from how we feel. That's the option we're going to be forced into, and we're going to depart from speaking things about God that really are about God. And so that means we are going to change the perception of God among us. And when we do that, we depart from the Lord and we're going to find ourselves becoming a people who reject authority. One of the things that happens when we depart from God's word in descriptions as a church family about God is we start to think authority is not really supposed to be in our life like it's supposed to be. When 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 you put God's word out, you start to reject authority. You also start to reject accountability. Because you don't want anybody telling you what you should do, what you should think, or how you should measure your own life. You don't want accountability. You start to reject responsibility. You come home as a dad and you're 
tired and you know you should lead your family spiritually, but you just don't feel like it. And so you make excuses for that because you're now rejecting responsibility because you're not describing what God is doing among you on the basis of who God really is. You're describing it based on how you want or need to feel. You ultimately begin to reject some of the most simple truths about God. I promise you tonight, if I ask the question, who in here who is a follower of Christ believes that God is in control of all things, we're all going to raise our hands. But if we do not measure the way we talk about God according to the word of God, you know what we're going to find ourselves doing? We're going to find ourselves getting so stressed out and overwhelmed by the activities of our life, we're going to live like he's in control of nothing because how we feel is going to generate everything we do and what we talk about. We will reject the simplest of truths. There's not a person in here that would not say that you should forgive somebody who sins against you. You all know that the Bible says we should forgive because we've been forgiven. We all know that. But if we don't measure the way we talk about God together and what He's doing by who God is and what God says, you know what we're going to do? The next coworker that stabs us in the back, we're going to be mad at them and we're going to justify it because of what they did. We're going to keep on being angry. We're going to hear sermons about forgiveness and we're going to think it doesn't apply to us because of what happened to us and how it made us feel. This is not an exaggeration. This is simply the first steps of experiencing what happens in a church family when we don't measure our words according to the direction of our Father. And so I want to encourage you to do a few things in response to this message. One is, I want you to really trust God as your Father and be ambitious about talking about Him and what He's doing. Don't talk less about Him. Talk better about Him. And make sure that you're paying attention to the words that come out of your mouth with some level of restraint that makes an effort to measure what you're saying against who he is and what he says. All right, and then make sure that the truth is pervasive in your life. Do John 8, 31 and 32. Abide in the word because that is our only hope. The truth is the only thing that will keep us from stepping into the sin of redefining who God is on the basis of what we want him to be. pervasive. There's two things you need to do with the pervasiveness of the truth. You need to be in the Word and you need to regularly acknowledge the Spirit of God's work in your life. Just regularly acknowledge the Spirit of God is in my life and is at work to convict me where I have crossed boundaries of the holiness and the character of God. And the Holy Spirit is here to guide me and help me. The Holy Spirit is the rudder on my tongue, the, rain, the, the bridle on my mouth. The Holy Spirit is my help to calm the fire of the tongue. So regularly acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit in your life in regard to convicting you in your sin. And then make sure that you are spending time with the people of God, inviting 
inviting them to help you. I would love it if this next week or two or three, um, you're walking around in the youth group or in your Bible study class or in the worship area, or maybe you're out um, eating out dinner with some folks and you, you find yourself say something and, and all of a sudden your friend says, hey, what did you just say? Did you just say worship was good on Sunday? Yeah, I want to talk more about that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in, in good humor, you begin to talk about how can we better measure our words. Some of this, so much of this is habitual. It's just, it's just what comes out of our mouth because we're not giving thought to it. and We're not thinking carefully about how our words as a church family convey the gospel. There are people listening to how we talk about God and they're determining who God is based on how we talk about Him. And if we're not measuring our words, we're not only endangering our family, we're endangering the gospel's effectiveness in our community through us. So, so have some fun with this. I mean, don't become like the, the, the word police. We don't want that. We don't need that. But we do want to have fun and be encouraging and say, hey, are you measuring? Are you thinking? Are you considering how we could say that differently? How we could say that better? Hey, I said this last week. I was thinking about it. What do you think? And figure out ways to talk about it and, and immerse yourself in the church family. You'd be amazed how often a brother or sister might say, hey, we don't talk like that in our family. You remember what dad said? It's okay. It's okay because you're family. I mean, isn't it true if you've got siblings, your sibling can say things to you a lot of people can't get away with? Mm. We're family. We've got the same father. And he wants our words to reflect him because every word that comes out of our mouth matters. Let's don't forget it.